Hi guys, welcome to episode 21 of the Man V Fat podcast. I am joined as ever by producer extraordinaire, Roman Conrad. How are you, Roman? I'm good, Stu. How are you? Good. How's your uh, week been? Um, it's been alright. I've had five minutes of football last night in the league. Yeah, uh, your return from injury is this? Yeah, I shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I shouldn't have. Um, but it was, yeah, I woke up this morning with my groin was still hurting. So um, I think a couple more weeks just off. Yeah. We'll do. yeah, ease yourself back in, don't rush back. I'm just getting angry. Well, just, yeah, because you want to get back sooner than you're ready. Listen to your body. That's, that's the key. If I don't listen to my body, then later problems in life. True. Uh, how did you find the last episode with Ned? Ned Stringer. I'm Ten still, stone Ned. I'm still shocked it is before and after photo. Yeah. Seriously. It's pretty good, isn't it? <sighs> It's the best one I've seen. And it's the way he did it for me as well. You know, just a bit of walking and reducing them calories. Simple method. Yeah, that's that's it. We are joined by Professor Damien Hughes. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on our podcast. Hey, no, thanks for having me on. Lads, I'm uh, dead chuffed when you got in touch and asked. So uh, it's a real honour to come on and chat with you. Good, good. So we... Uh, just to give a bit of background to yourself, you are a sports psychologist, yep. author, yep. Uh, you are a coach, yep. you've worked with rugby, you've worked in boxing, football. Yeah, 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 a lot. quite a few, yeah. Uh, we've just been talking a little bit about boxing with Roman. Roman's a big boxing fan, aren't you? I do, I love it. We're talking a little bit about the Ukrainian prospects that are coming through. Uh, you wrote... Uh, Three, yeah, six books. Is that right? Yeah, I've done, um, a few more than that. To be honest, you, I've done a, um, I think it's ten. So I've done ten, but I've done three on boxing. So uh, on um, there's I did one on Sugar Ray Robinson, the old champion from the forties and fifties. But then I did a couple of uh, biographies on Tommy Earns and Marvelous Marvin Agler. Really? So they were like two. For any listeners that are a bit too young, these were like classic champions in the 70s and 80s like they were like you trying to think of like you Floyd Mayweathers of the day yeah. uh, back then so uh, yeah I've done a couple of books on them as well so um, I'd, yeah I love the sport yeah really uh, Marvin Agler marvellous marvellous Marvin Agler oh yeah he changed his he name changed legally by Deepol oh yeah, yeah yeah so if you meet him and you said like, nice to meet you Marvin he'd blank you if you said nice to meet you marvellous Marvin he'd be how are you doing? Nice to see you. Really? But, oh, yeah, yeah, even today. Is he a bit of a character? Well, he did it. I mean, it was an interesting story that uh, he asked the... the so, Spoking Joe Fraser had said to him, he said, you've got three issues um, early on in his career. He said, one, you're black. He said, two, you're a southpaw. And three, you're good. And he said, so nobody will want to fight you. Yeah. So he always had that chip on his shoulder because he was a difficult character to fight. And... Um, that got even worse when he said to him, right, I want you to refer to me as Marvellous Marvin, and they wouldn't do it. They said, no, no, we're not using nicknames like that. So he was like a proper dog in a manger, so he went and legally changed his name so they had to do so it, had to do just it. to make the point, which I love that level of belligerent. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I've got to win the argument, and I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah, so, like uh, I've got to change my name by default. Yeah. I'll do it. So obviously the boxing side of things, you, you, you've wrote some books, and you've also uh, done a few books on... Um, on on business, uh, Liquid Thinker. Yeah, so I did um, about fifteen years ago. I I wrote a book called Liquid Thinking, where um, 
I wanted to write a book. So where I was working at the time, we were doing a lot of stuff similar to the Man vs. Fat uh, work that you lads do, um, where it was about... So it was in business, but we were helping people understand that the psychology of change is change wherever it is, whether you're trying to change eating patterns, whether it's you're trying to change the performance in a factory, whether it's you're trying to improve a football team. There's a certain um, pattern to change regardless of it. But the lads I was doing it for, they, it was in a factory just outside of Birkenhead. So it was quite a tough place where I'd been doing this project. And I wanted to book that almost gave them the tools. So uh, some of these lads were thinking they wanted to start running like kids' football teams or they started wanting to go to the wives, Weight Watchers classes or things like that and, t and share them. But they almost wanted to have like a bit of a manual for doing it. And when I was looking out there to, uh, to give them a book to almost code it, there was, two, there was two types of books that we found and neither of them would do the job for these, these type of lads. One was, if it was too woolly, they'd dismiss it because he was cynical. And yeah. like, this is a load of shit, I'm not reading this. But if it was too academic, they wouldn't read that either. They'd say, I'm not wasting my time reading that. So I was trying to find something that sort of found a middle ground that I couldn't. So I thought, you know what, I'll write it myself. So I wrote this book, and even then I still thought... The, um, so I went and interviewed the likes of Richard Branson. I went out to Atlanta and interviewed Muhammad Ali, Ferguson at United. So... I went and interviewed people like that around how they'd made change happen, as well as then giving enough of the psychology that was substance to it. But I still thought, they still won't read it, because I knew what they'd do. They were cynical. They'd go, yeah, Richard Branson, like, it's all right, you mentioned in him, but his mum and dad was rich. Yeah. Or, do you know what I mean? Like, Muhammad Ali, well, he was naturally talented. That's why it's, it's different. So what I did was I started thinking, how can I make them take this seriously? And when I was looking around the factory where it was, I started, I'd noticed, I thought, there's some lads here that have done some really exceptional things. Like, there was one lad who'd, like, he'd never, he'd never run further than um, to change the channels on the telly or something like that. And he'd sort of, in a year, ended up running the London Marathon. There was another lad who he built his own house from scratch so he could get his kids into the catchment area for the best school in the area. There was another fella that had sort of had a lifelong ambition to build his own canal boat. I didn't know what he was doing, but went and did it. So what I started doing was interviewing these lads as well and telling their story alongside Richard Branson to say, right, Richard Branson built a business empire. Well, this lad built his own yeah. his own house for his family. You know, uh, Muhammad Ali overcame so many obstacles to become the world heavyweight champion. But look at Mark here, who's overcome his own obstacles to become... Yeah, it's kind of uh, a marathon runner. Pointing the parallels out between the two. Well, what happened was it became really hard for the lads then to be cynical about it because you can go, right, you can you can dismiss Richard Branson's story if you want, but you can't dismiss Mark because he, he went to the same school as you and he works in the same factory as you and you know his family. So suddenly it had real substance. So I wrote the book, but the book was only ever for the lads in the factory. So there's only 600 um, that we did for them. But what happened was the um, people heard about it um, and publisher came along and said, I'd be interested in buying the book off you. So it's a book called Liquid Thinking. So it was never intended to be read by anybody outside of the lads in the yeah. factory, but that was the very first book I did that seemed to get quite a lot of interest. And then I've, I've just been lucky enough to, um, to write a few other books on the back of it since. Amazing. What a fantastic, uh, like, 
story that is just to to, to get into to, to writing just just that way yeah so like I think if anyone would have ever sat down and said this is how you write a book I don't think I would have bothered yeah because it would have been too hard and I think people would have put me off you know and I, and I can see parallels for some of the stuff you do if somebody ever said right this is how you how you go about doing this like losing weight or living a healthy lifestyle oh, fuck that. I'm not doing that yeah but the reality is that that naivety was actually a really good advantage because when I made a list of people that I wanted to interview, the likes of Branson or Muhammad Ali, like, there's no reason that they would ever have given me interview. But then because I was naive, I thought, well, why, why wouldn't they? We're only over six degrees of separation from anybody. And then I worked out who knows them that might know them that can ask for me. And then you'd be surprised as well how small the world we actually live in. Yeah. So, but the idea behind it was only ever to, uh, just to give people a really simple idea about what what change is about. And liquid thinking, people sometimes say, well, why do you call it that? And I often say, there's two, like, there's two answers. One answer is, I was sat in the pub with my mate and we were trying to think of a catchy title for it. But the other more, the, like, the, like the other answer that I say that tries to make me sound a bit cleverer <laughs> <laughs> is that there's the work of a guy called Edward de Bono. He's a, he's a famous creativity guru. And he says, 90% of our problems in life come because we have solid thinking. And what he means by that is we think we know the answers that we go, oh, that won't work, that's nonsense. And we're too fixed in our thinking that we think we know. And he said, and if we could just have a bit more fluidity in our thinking being prepared to see things from a different angle would make changes happen a lot easier so i thought well liquid thinking captures that idea of because they say it was aimed predominantly at blokes in this factory to say just come at this from a slightly different view rather than just always be cynical about it or be a know-all about it come at it from the angle of maybe there's something we can learn that's fast fantastic is, is that um have you ever seen is it bruce lee you'll know it because you're a big yeah. And he's like, be like water. Be water. Be water. Yeah. So it's water's formless, it's shapeless. What it can crash, break and fall. What it becomes, what it goes into a teapot, it becomes a teapot, it goes into a teacup, it becomes a teapot. <laughs> Brilliant. You know what I mean? I've not heard yeah, that. I, kn- I knew you'd get that. <laughs> it's Bruce Lee. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Today, be formless. You. I thought you were going to say the the Customato one because he talks about fear, didn't he? Fear's like fire. Yeah. He said that you can either heat your house or it can burn your house down. Mm if you, it's not controlled so fear's a good thing as long as you can harness the power of it yeah so it's the same thing as the bruce lee thing isn't it it's, it is if you can control the water it can be so. incredibly powerful if it goes against you it'd drown you yeah, yeah i like that we love, we love it we love a, a quote like that don't we Rob? we do in <laughs> particular <laughs> so, so just bringing you up to date so your latest book um um the barcelona way yeah so how did that come about well, um, my publisher came to me about five years ago because uh, I've been lucky. I've done a few books since. So, uh, um, a publisher said to me, "Would you?" So, my background is um, I'm, I'm I'm a professor of organisational psychology and change. So, it's very much around sort of teams and cultures and things like that. And they said, "Would you be interested in writing a book around organisational psychology?" So, I'd love to do it. But I also know nobody's really rushing out to buy a book on organisational yeah. <laughs> psychology so they said uh, would you be interested in doing it through the lens of a sports team yeah of course because that makes it a bit more accessible now the reality is a lot of, like 
like you'll often hear if any of your listeners sort of follow sport you'll often hear people talk about culture oh, we've got a good culture in our team or but the reality is most teams just pay lip service to it they say they do and then you scratch beneath the surface I think it was Danny Blanchfield the old Tottenham footballer said you know like team spirit is that illusion of uh, how people act once you've won something so a lot of people say we've got a good culture but if you said well what does it mean how, like, how does it mean the reality is they don't they, like they just pay lip service to it but there was a few teams that have genuinely said let's understand culture a bit more and let's use it as a competitive advantage now the three that stand out are the New England Patriots in the NFL New Zealand Rugby Union and then the third one is Barcelona so I think it was their fair cost that the publishers went do Barcelona <laughs> yeah. but um, I then spent two and a half years sort of really researching it, going interviewing back and forth from there, interviewing a lot of people behind it. And what it emerged was that they genuinely had decided that, said, in our world, talent will equal itself out. We all spend roughly the same amount of money. Everyone's as fit and as fast and as strong as each other. So they're always looking for what's the, un, like, what's the bit that can give you an advantage. And they thought culture was what this great untapped area. So I, st I start the book from um, 2008 because that was... So in 2006, they won the Champions League for the second time in the history. They beat Arsenal in Paris. And they said they got complacent. They just thought this success was going to continue and it didn't. They said they, it was, Their words was, it was like watching a slow-motion car crash and then take place for two years. So in 2008, they went, rather than panic about this, let's properly investigate culture. So they put in place... And this is where I start the book from, what they decided to do next. Now, in the 11 years to date since they've done this, they've been uh, Spanish champions nine out of the last 11 times. They've been champions of Europe three times in that same period. Now, bear in mind, they'd only done it un twice before in over 100 years prior to this. They've been world champions three times in the same period. So, like, we, we can almost take it for granted, but this is, uh, like, a complete... Uh, change and turnaround in Spanish football history that we often associate Madrid or Barcelona but nobody's dominated to this extent for this long or certainly not Barcelona so the book talks about what they did and how they went about doing it okay and what 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 were the, the let's take three of the major uh, culture changes that they that they uh, employed to, to get where it, to be honest, probably the the best club side there ever has been, arguably. You could certainly argue that, yeah. Mm. I mean, it was interesting that for years, like, um, so for years they'd always regarded themselves as sort of like, uh, like subjugated by Spain, and, and especially Madrid, and it was Cruyff when he came in in the 70s, and he went, he said, no, he said, you've got Madrid-itis, was what he described it as. He said, you view yourself as a victim. And it's a really powerful point he made. He went, you can't be successful if you always see yourself as a victim. So you need to get away from this and you need to start laying down the law a bit of this is what we stand for. So they regard themselves as they represent Catalonia. But they've got this idea that, so Cruyff said, and we're not just going out there to win trophies and we don't care how we do it. Because he said, because you might play the most boring football and if you don't win the league, you've lost on both counts, you've bored everyone and you didn't win what you wanted. So his point was, get out of this mindset of either or, it's both and. We can win trophies and we can be stylish and play with a, like a flair and a panache. 
So that sort of mindset has been sort of in place. And then when they brought Guardiola back in, in 2008, when they started the book, he came in and sort so one of his famous quotes is, he said, Cruyff built this cathedral. My job is just there to maintain it. So they came in and it was about playing with a style and a flair and a panache, but doing it in the right way. So we identified what they call trademark behaviours. So this is a question that, again, if any of your listeners are interested in terms of for some of the challenges that they might face, there's a really nice uh, approach they used. Now, the phrase I used, it's not what Barcelona described it as, success leaves clues. So the point I say is, when you're good, why are you good? Because if you can't tell me what, you, what your behaviours are like when you're good, how do you know to fix it when you're bad? Yeah. Because you know, then you just get stuck in a spiral. So what they did was, Cruyff came in and went, uh, Guardiola came in and went, right, when we're good, why, like, how do we define ourselves? And they had three behaviours. They went, first of all, we've got humility about ourselves. So we're not swaggering around. We're not thinking that we're the bee's knees. We come in and we're humble. The second thing he said is, we come in and we work hard. So he said, getting to the dressing room at Barcelona isn't the end, it's just the end of the beginning of your journey, your graft when you come in there. And then the third one is, he said, you, and then you put the team above your own self-interest. So he said, if you're ever in a situation where there's a clash between what's right for you and what's right for the team, don't be under any illusion, choose the team option. So he employed a guy called Manel SDR, who's a fascinating character former water polo player but he's a good mate at Guardiola's don't know anything about football but Guardiola said I'm not bringing you in to tell me about football I know that he said what you're here to do is come in and, and make sure these behaviours are embedded so there's a lovely story where one of the ways he used to do it was he used to sit on the substitutes bench during games and he wasn't watching the game he was watching the bench and what he was looking for were who were the players that were watching the game and cheering the teammates on and who were the ones that were just sat there chatting with the pals and chewing gum? Because he said, if in that situation, they're putting their self-interest above the teams. Because they've not been picked, they don't give a shit how the team does. It's more about... And they said, once you're clear about these behaviours, they spoke out a lovely phrase called FIFO. He said, fit in or fuck off. But, you, <laughs> but, but the point was, yeah. if you're going to be part of this club, you don't pick and choose the bits that suit you. You don't decide that on some days I'll do this, on other days I'm not. A commitment culture is about consistently turning up and doing these behaviours. And they said, so we'll be watching you all the time to make sure these behaviours are. So you don't turn up five minutes late for training because hard work is one of our behaviours. So you turn up and you're on the field five minutes early because you've got a graft. Or it might be, they said, don't be driving fancy sports cars into training. Why not? Well, we're humble. And we don't want to see how rich you are or how wealthy you are or don't be showing off about your Instagram followers. Don't give a shit. You're here to be humble because if you're not humble, you can't learn. So that's how they built the club on on these foundations of these are the behaviours that we want. So there's loads of examples of it where they had a young lad called Thiago who played for Bayern, plays for Bayern Munich now, but when he scored his first goal on his debut, he was only 19, and he got carried away and started doing this samba dance as a celebration. And Carlos Puyol, the captain, comes over and gives him a clip round the head. Yeah. Stop that shit. And then comes out in the press afterwards and apologises to the opposition. They've just beat the opposition 7-0. And the captain comes out and says, I want to apologise for what we did after that fifth goal. He said, that's not what we stand for it's in not this the, club. The humility's not there then, is it? Not, yeah, and yeah. he said, we weren't trying to embarrass you. 
he said we wanted to score as many as we could against you so I'm not apologising for beating you but I'm apologising that we didn't behave in the way we should have done so it became a really powerful culture that is just the way we do things around here and, and the book sort of tries to break it down into bits that rather than just start from there there's lots of little bits so the way I often think about it it's like an ecosystem that if you take a bit out of the ecosystem it weakens the system but it won't break it but if you take enough out it weakens it where it'll fall but you have to do lots of little things it's not just one silver bullet answer yeah. to it so I mean a lot of people I sometimes say this when I talk to groups about it I say how many people have got a smartphone oh, yeah, I've got one so what percentage of your smartphone do you think you use so not how frequently what percentage of it now the estimate is it most of us will use our smartphones somewhere between seven and ten percent so my obvious next question is, how many of you have ever read the instruction manual to tell you about how to use your phone? Most of never looked at it. So you go, well, how do, why would you expect to use its potential if you don't know what the potential is in the first place? And what I wanted the book to do was to almost try and open people's eyes up to say, this is like your instruction manual for how you can create a really good culture, whether it's with your team that you play in, um, as we're talking about here, or whether it's your workplace or... I won't go as far as saying family because I, I wouldn't want people to feel they're being patronised but any group of people whether it is a family whether it's a team whether it's a business there's some simple ideas that hopefully the book illustrates how to do something how to make it better Fantastic and uh, I've, I've read the book and obviously one of the points is that like you say uh, you either fit in or, or F off um, and Ibrahimovic <laughs> didn't, yeah, yeah. Didn't, didn't necessarily fit in um, was quickly shipped out and he's one of the examples of okay some some players initially buy into it and some players just don't yeah yeah so they brought him in for 70 million euros and then shipped him out for 45 million 10 months later but when I interviewed people around it this is a really I think this is a really important point they went brilliant bloke nobody spoke ill of him they all went oh great bloke really good funny character but they went just didn't behave in the way we expected so I always think that's really key distinction you can criticize somebody's behaviors without criticizing the individual do you, do you know what i mean and that yeah. and their point was it just wasn't right for us so he was the wrong he was the talented player but just not right for our culture you know like one of the uh, the goalkeeper I interviewed uh, valdez that was there so he, he was at united at the time and he said he was great for united because that he was exactly what we needed somebody that yeah. was big and brash and bold but he wasn't right for Barcelona in that culture. So he, so you'll often find that in lots of organisations that people make excuses for talent. They go, oh, he, uh, he might be a dickhead, but he's a, but he's a good player. Or, you know, or you hear it in the business world, you go, he might be a salesman, and they go, oh, he's not, he's probably not my cup of tea, but he hits the numbers. And in a culture, in a healthy culture, you don't make excuses for talent, the behaviour is the important thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think we experiences from it from a manly fat coach's point of view. Some guys come in and and, and uh, guys who are listening to this who are playing manly fat leagues will know it. They just don't get it. They just they just don't buy into what we what we're trying to do. Yeah. They just don't get it, and 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 that's fine. And I would never talk ill of anybody. Some people get it. Some people don't. Yeah, yeah. Of yeah. Course. Some for some people it's 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 oh I'm a bit out of shape. There's a league there that I potentially could play football in. That's not what it's about. It's about weight loss. 
yep. this league. It's not that league where it's the platform for fat blokes to have a kick around. It's, it's for your health benefits and for your health benefits only. And if you think it's anything but, then it's not for you. Yeah, but, yeah. but even your point there, Roman, what you're saying is you do get some guys who join who, who think, you know, it's a bit of a kick about, I'm quite good at football, I'm carrying a bit of timber, yeah. uh, you know, I can, I can boss this league a little bit. But some of them never never get it. But some of the guys who come in and do that actually go, do you know what, this is great for my health. This is great. Yeah, I, yeah. I've lost loads of weight. This is fantastic. Uh, yeah. We're having the, the crack with the lads and you know, I can talk to them. Well, I can't talk to my other mates down the pub. I can talk to them about other things. Uh, so, you, you know, you do get people who come for different reasons but stay for different reasons as well. Yeah. But I feel it's really powerful that you're really clear about what, what the culture is, what our, like what your intention is and how people have to behave. And really clear that it sounds to me that people understand that it's yeah. the FIFO effect fit in and come along and you'll make friends and you'll get the health benefits oh fuck off and go to somewhere else and not have to fall out about it like saying fuck off sounds really aggressive and it yeah. doesn't have to be like that but go somewhere else if you wouldn't play football and 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 it's all about winning games I'm sure there's plenty of places that look yeah, we, all, we always say that we always say that it's you know for, for what for what they, these guys are, are paying, they can go and play in a power league. They can go and play for an hour, so they can get double the amount on the pitch. But that's not what we're about. We're yeah, not yeah. we're not a football league that's a little bit of weight loss. We are a weight, we are basically a, you know we are a weight loss group who play football, and and our weight loss is centered around football. Our football is not centered around the weight loss. I yeah. think it's brilliant. I love that distinction. Yeah, I think the, the guys who really get it get that quite you know they get it pretty early on don't they yeah it's like an art team we had um, when people start talking about the football I, I personally don't like it when we talk tactics too early in the week it's for me it's, you'll talk on the on game day because you've got 30, 30 minutes of football and then you've got a full week of weight loss so essentially the football is only at 30 minutes within how many minutes of a week yeah yeah so but I see this like like my little fella goes to he, he plays rugby and um uh, I've said this to the coaches there. Um, I've said to them, I said, what was your first question you asked the kids when they come off the field? And these were all well-intentioned lads. They go, did you win? I said, with all due respect, what do you give a shit whether eight and nine-year-old lads win for? It's irrelevant. It shouldn't be affecting your week. I said, so one of them, well, what would you say? I said, I'd ask three questions before I asked that one. What? Did you enjoy it? Because if the answer to that is yeah, they'll come back next week. Second thing is, what did you learn? So you know that they're listening and they're engaged. Third one is, how did you contribute to the team? So you know that their social inclusiveness is they being a team player. Mm. Then maybe the fourth question might be, by the way, how did you get on? But if your only question is, did you win? Well, by definition, half the kids on that field are going to have lost. So what you're, the implication behind asking, did you win, is, and if you didn't, it's not worth anything. There's no follow-up no question to it, is there? There's it? no follow-up question. Yeah. No, I didn't. Right, well, that was a fucking waste of time. <laughs> yeah, the reality yeah, yeah. is you go, well, it wasn't. Yeah. You've, learned, you've learned team skills. You've learned you've been running around. You've been out in the fresh air. You've enjoyed yourself. You've, there's loads of things you've learned. But if your only question is, did we win? Well, it's a yes or no, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, half, and half the group are going to come away telling you the answer's no. So you've lost all those brilliant learnings. And that's why I love what you're saying, actually. It's a weight loss group that just happens to play football. I think but you need to write a book in parenting it with sports parents or something like that. <laughs> I think ah, that's your next one. I've, honestly, like, because <laughs> it, 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 well, it's an emotive topic, isn't it? Because 
it's your kids and you think that like everybody thinks that that like you can't say that about my kids and things like that but the reality is 99.9% of kids are never going to play football professionally or play sport professionally mm. so you go so why are they playing it well the answer is you want to teach them some life skills that as grown ups is going to be useful for them and then secondly and you also want to win the game so you want to have that competitive instinct but it's not just about that you know and I think it gets a bad press in this country because People go, oh, is this about where everyone's a winner and everyone gets a medal and school sports days where you, you know, no, but it's also making sure that there's kids that are not going to be the first in a race or the top of the league, that they continue to exercise into adulthood as well without feeling shit or feeling daft or being made to feel stupid or a failure. And it's just about trying to change that mindset that it's easy to be cynical about it, but the reality is... Most of us are not playing sport because we want to be professionals. We're playing it because we want to enjoy exercising. Yeah. And you, I think you lose like a, you know, the dropout rate from probably like age 16 into adult football is massive. It's huge. And I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that when, you know, you've, you've come up playing football, you're not going to make a professional. You do it for fun. And when, when it becomes all about results and, and the enjoyment's gone, why would you carry on? Well, I mean, I'm lucky I work in sort of elite sport and I remember asking one team, and I'll, I'll spade the details where it was, but I remember we did it as an exercise with them. We said, what's the best team you've ever been a part of? These are all lads getting the, the elite level of the sport and pretty much 90% of them told us it was either their school team or their amateur team they played with. So you go, okay, this is interesting. Why is that? And they gave you two answers. One, they went, there was no pressure. It was about enjoying it. And secondly, they went to play with my mates and that really mattered to me. So what I often say to some professional coaches is, how can you try and capture the benefits of that? Because none of these are saying to you, oh, it's the team that I won that trophy with or it's where I got paid this amount of money with. They're not telling you that. They're telling you, I like playing it when it was for the fun of it and I like doing it because I was with my mates. Yeah. And that never, like, that never leaves us. But the reality is, like you say, the transition from... Being a 16-year-old kid playing with your mates and then going into grown-up football mm. where it's about win at all costs and booting somebody up in the air and giving them a whispering in their ear and intimidating them and you're doing it where nobody's backing each other up. So, well, where's the fun in that? Yeah, and I think, I think as well when you see players who've come through maybe you, Frank, at a professional level and they're playing together, you do, it is noticeable that they do have more, they seem to have more enjoyment playing football with a friend you know you look at somebody who's three or four look at the class of 92 who've come together all mates all played from from an early age come through the ranks together you know well the, Barcelona the had that, that going back to the book yeah. they had it they and you look at in rugby Saracens they've got a core United in the class of 92 they did you know Tottenham to a degree have got it a bit now they've got kids coming through that are from the ranks and don't underestimate the power of playing with your mates and that idea that you'll dig a bit deeper for your pal. Do you know what I mean? Like, like one of the sports I've worked in is rugby league and that tends to promote, because it's a smaller sport, you get a lot of sort of homegrown players coming through so you can you can try and create that little bit of a cohesion there. And I say, don't be surprised that people will dig a lot deeper for the mates than they would do for a colleague and that's what I think. And again, it goes back to I think what you're doing, the Man V Fat leagues. I think it's 
you're trying to create that sense of comradeship, that camaraderie of we're in this together, let's help each other out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's no surprise when we look at the statistics that the, the teams who lose the most weight uh, are the teams who are probably closest. It, and, and the man we even join together, it's the teams who, who just bond straight away. They're all in a WhatsApp group and we monitor the WhatsApp groups in and out. Um, and the WhatsApp groups that are the busiest always lose the most amount of weight. Of course you do, because it's about peer perception as much as anything else. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've often said that, like, when I go and work with teams, I say, like, one of the things that culturally I often say it's poison and get on top of it is the word banter. Get rid of that word, just, just ban it. And I've got a general rule of thumb. I've yet to meet anyone that uses that word liberally that isn't a bit of a dick. Because it's often, and, and the distinction I make is not having a laugh, because humour's important, but I'm talking about that banter where it's taking the piss out of somebody yeah. and it's targeted. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, so, so if you do something daft, Stu, I might laugh at what you've done daft because it's a behaviour and you can change the behaviour. But if I'm making a comment about you as a person, well, there's nothing you can do about that. And that's the distinction of the banter where you go, that's hurtful. And you, the reality is nobody wants to feel daft or feel like we're yeah. under attack. I think that word sometimes comes secondary when somebody does take offence at something. And, oh, it's just banter. Yeah, yeah, it's often an and excuse. It, all, yeah. But, but it, it, it's often the last excuse of the dickhead. Because yeah. it's that idea, it's just banter. Can't you take... And then it's your fault that you can't take the humour. Yeah. But you go, but nobody's laughing. Nobody's laughing what you're doing. It's a nasty, snide comment that you've made. And that's why... Because this often gets... Like, it might be people listening going, hang on a minute, I'm not talking about not having a laugh. That's really important. So it'll probably it'll probably ch- ch- chime with a lot of people because he's, uh, a lot of our listeners are in Manby Fatleys. They're overweight guys. So they've probably had the mate who banters them for years and years and yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, and it's witless, isn't it? Mm, Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, like, I, like, I've got a little... Like, I've only got a few really core mates that I'm at the age now where, you know, when, like, your mates that you know we're in it for the long haul, where we've been pals. And I've often said this to people, even when we was, like, younger men, we'd always talk each other up. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. if, like if one of the lads had met a girl, we wouldn't be going, what are you looking with him for? We'd go, you're dead lucky to be speaking to him. And they'd go, well, you are. And you'd go, he's a fucking great lad, him. What like because you say well, why do I want to take the piss out of you to a stranger yeah. you know what I mean if you want to meet a girl I want you to meet a nice girl I don't want to I don't want to make you feel yeah, daft yeah. or on the back foot of having to justify yourself I think I think when that happens it says more about the person who's who's giving out than yeah but that's why I think what you're doing with these groups is it's almost like just talk each other up just give each other a little nod of hey you're looking good or, you know I've noticed you've lost a bit of weight yeah. that's great and just think about the, the culture that gets created when you're actually catching each other in rather than catching each other out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's a small distinction. And it might sound like um, my next suggestion is doing a group hug or high fives, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not. But I do think there's something about creating a kinder, more decent culture for ourselves because life, you know, there's plenty of dickheads out there that will that will be cruel to you, but I think when you can come together as a group like what you're doing, a big part of it is looking out for each other yeah. and catching each other in and 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 like you know, hey, you're looking good. I've noticed you've lost like the lad you had on last week where he showed me his picture before. Yeah, that's incredible. But the point is, I bet he looks incredible four stone ago. 
you know what yeah. I mean? And it's yeah, almost yeah. about just giving that sense of, hey, you're looking great, so you, you, you get the momentum off, or oh, I want to carry on doing this. Yeah, we do, we get, we get, um, we get lads who go shopping and you've got a new shirt or a new jacket and they're like, come get in this size before and it's a size down and you get, and you get, you know, the photo goes up there and it, it, it is, uh, you know, it has a, a major effect to say, yeah, looking good, mate, you wouldn't have got in that three months ago, you know. Mm. And, it, and it's weird because it goes against everything that growing up you expect blokes, bloke culture, I just hate it. Blokes and, and you know, yeah, that kind of... It's a nonsense. Like, we see yeah. it, like, like, when I work in, like, rugby, so I'm working with one of the uh, the home nation international teams now, and I sometimes show them clips and I say, right, have a look at this guy. I say, any idiot can jump on your back when you score a try. Everyone wants to be a mate that moment. That's no indication of a good team. My definition of a good team is when you fuck up who stood next to you and who's bailing you out and you look at any of the patterns. When you make a mistake, if I'm, if you've got somebody balling at you or turning the back on you, guarantee within the next five minutes you'll do so, you, you, you will either go wild to try and fix it and you'll make another mistake. You'll either go in your shell or you'll be or you'll have a little injury or a knock and try and get off the field. Whereas, when you make that mistake, if somebody's coming over, hey, it'll be all right, don't worry, we'll look after you. Come on, we'll all handle this. Guarantee it just calms you down and you're more likely to be able to fix that problem a lot quicker. So, you're right, it's a society issue that we get caught up in this idea that you've got to be taking the piss, got to be, you know, that we can't acknowledge something good about somebody else because maybe we feel it's a sign of softness but the reality is that soft skills like that lead to really hard benefits. Yeah, and you do get that as well. You get that in, in, in professional football. You know, you might have somebody who makes a mistake and you can always tell, um, it's, it's evident from watching, especially if you're watching on telly, um, you know, a player might give a corner away stupidly and, and someone will come over and it's, it might be, it's sometimes a tap on the arse with an arm on the shoulder, come on. And I think initially watching that for the first time you think well what, what's he what's he praising him for and it's not an actual it's a praise to say you know you can do better don't worry about it it's gone we'll defend the corner and it'll, you'll be okay so it's a really good point Sue. so it's not about telling somebody you're amazing all the time it's not about that it's just somebody saying don't worry i'm with you i'm on your side i acknowledge you all stuff like that so it's not you really need to say that Sometimes it is just that little bum tap that just lets them know I've recognised it. Stuff like that is really, really powerful in a in in in, in a high performing team and a high performing culture. And don't let anyone tell you that because the easiest thing in the world is to be cynical or take the piss out of somebody. It's the easiest thing in the world, but it's the most destructive thing if you've not if it's not built on solid foundations. Mm. It's like we have we have extra extra games, don't we? Uh, throughout the week and obviously there's no pressure on these games it's the people who turn up and, they, and they'll play and sometimes people will take you know the league games and bring it onto that pitch and you know they, they're, they're all telling how it is and obviously giving them negative comments and and then sometimes the players will just get kind of angry at themselves if, if they've messed up and they'll hear people around going listen it's, it's this is this is a game where you improve. It's there's no pressure. It's a Saturday morning game. Right. Just go, just go and improve. Make mistakes. You're allowed to make mistakes. Yeah, yeah. You know, no one's, no one's asking the best of you. And then the people kind of go, 
All right, and they play more comfortable. Of course, yeah. yeah you can it's, see, you almost see the shoulders relax. Yeah. You get a tear, but what you were saying before about the, the teammates coming to you, it reminds me of a story with when David Beckham got his red card. He was in 98 World Cup. Yeah, yeah, against Argentina. And after, um, when they all piled in the dressing room after, everyone was just avoiding like the plague. I think it was only Tony Adams that went and sat next to him in the arm and went, listen, mate, come on. Yeah. He was the only person that kind of just went, come on. That's class, isn't it? Yeah. Because that, that's what you want, and I love you better. That's what you remember. But if you ask Beckham, I bet he'd remember that moment more than yeah. anyone bawling him out. You know, he knows he's fucked up. He doesn't need yeah. somebody sort of shunning him at that moment. You can't make him feel worse than what he is. No. You need somebody just saying, all right, we'll fix this, don't worry. And you see, it's something, I just think it's a, I think, go back to what you lads are doing. I think there's something about kindness, and it sounds soft to use words like that, but the reality is we need to start being kind to ourselves and to the people that are in the same boat as us that we that are in our team. You know, and I use that term loosely, but I'm talking about man versus fat rather than just what mm. team you play in, um, in terms of the football. Yeah. Just start being kind to each other and start catching each other in, recognising what we're good at rather than what we're not or you know, what we can't do. Talk about the weight you have lost, not the weight you need to lose. Yeah. All that kind of thing, and just create some momentum. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, in in um, in your books, you talk about the the arc of change, uh, and how it's a process that that we go through. Yeah. And and there's certain um, things that that we hit along the way. Yeah. So the idea of the arc of change is that that change follows a pattern, and we know it, and it's common sense. And then when we say to people, now we want you to change, common sense doesn't become common practice. So I read a stat years ago about um, diet clubs like Weight Watchers and Slimming World and things like that, where it suggested that around 98.1% of people that go to them are the same weight or every 12 months after they join. So you go, well, hang on a minute. People are joining a club specifically to lose weight, and yet the 98.1% of them are not doing that. What's happening? And part of the reason is, I mean, I've never been to those clubs, so I'm not making aspersions about them. Mm. Uh, but I I would imagine, and the bits I do understand, a lot of it is common sense stuff. Eat less, move more, is the essence of it. I imagine, like all, uh, all, all, you know, like all weight, what, uh, weight loss advice follows. So the question is, well, if it's as simple as that, then why do still people fail to do it? And the reality is, that we fail to prepare for the arc of change. So the arc of change says that there's five stages that you go through when you want to make change happen. So the first stage is you dream. So maybe it might be for you know for your listeners, you think, you know what, I want to feel great this summer on my holidays. I want to lose a bit of weight and I want to be able to play with the kids on the beach. Or, so, so we have a dream in our head that we say, right, we want to do this. The second stage is we have a leap stage where we say, right, I'm going to join up man versus fat. I'm going to, go to this club and I'm going to I'm gonna just uh, resist having those biscuits at work or whatever it is, all the patterns we get into. It's the third stage where it starts to go wrong because this is the, the third stage is we call the fight stage or it's the messy middle. This is where you get too far in to go back but you're not far enough to see the end. So this is where your morale dips. Maybe you're not losing weight as fast as you want to or maybe you've had, um, like you fell off the wagon a bit do you know what I mean? And you start, yeah. and then this is the bit where you start going, oh, I can't lose weight. 
you know, and you start making excuses for yourself. Oh, that's just the way I am. My mum and dad was big. You start coming up with narratives like that. But you need to get through that bit. So you almost, but the worst time to get through it is when you're in it. So if you go back to the start and go, right, before you even start, just sit down and think about all the things that could, that could stop you. So you go, right, what could happen? You know, I might have a few bad days. I might be booked to go away with some mates for a weekend where I know I'm gonna get, uh, I'm gonna get on it. It might be that um, I don't lose weight as fast as I won. Or, so you just anticipate some of the problems. And then if, when you anticipate them, you go, and how am I gonna handle that moment? So you do it long before you're ever in the moment. And what we know is that just asking that question improves your resilience to dealing with setbacks and when you get through that you get to the fourth stage which is you start to see some real progress you start to see it climb and then when you get beyond there it creates its own momentum and you get to the arrival stage now the problem is there's a concept in psychological literature called Cantor's law and Cantor's law is the third stage where it says when you go on any initiative whether it's trying to change something in work or as we're talking about uh, weight loss Cantor's law says it will always look and feel like a failure in the middle. That's the bit that where most people go, oh, I can't do this. But we can give ourselves a fighting chance of getting through it by just anticipating it and putting and having plans in place to say, how am I going to get through that? Does it, it's, it's inevitable that at some point, uh, and we all know that, we've, you know, both been on weight loss journeys in the last two years ourselves mm -hmm. that you do get that that dip in the middle where you do put a few pounds back on and you think oh am i yeah. really you know is it is this is this serving me and you forget how far you've come as well yeah uh, yeah of course you, you do you know you might be three or four stone down at this point maybe with another two to go maybe even one uh, and and you do have that that dip in the middle well, like, like take a simple example right if somebody said to you can you accept that you weren't born as a comfort eater and everyone goes yeah of course I'm not so you weren't born that's not a label you were born into no I accept that so you go right so if you look at comfort eating take and and, and I'm making this up right but you say let's look at how you learn to comfort eat and it might be when you were a kid you were crying and making a fuss and some well-intentioned adult comes along and gives you a bar of chocolate to calm you down and make you feel better so you develop a, a, a neural pathway in your mind that says when I'm upset how do I serve it and there's a link there, there's a sugary snack, it makes me feel better. So you get into this habit and then it leads to weight gain. So you make a decision, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break this pattern, so I'm gonna stop doing that. And you can do it and you can do it and then you hit cancer's law, yeah? Where you might not, you're not losing the weight as fast as you want or you might fall off the wagon and make a few mistakes. And the danger zone is then you suddenly go, oh, I'm big boned or it's my glands or my mum and dad was, and you start making up a narrative for yourself that convinces yourself weight loss doesn't happen to people like me when the reality is you've just hit a bit of a, you're stuck in yeah. cancer you're stuck in the messy middle of change and it might have even happened at that point anyway yeah exactly but the reality is we, but when you ask people up front they go oh, no, I'm, I, of course I'm not born as a comfort eater that's a ridiculous mm. thing but then when you're stuck in that middle common sense goes out the window and you start buying into these nonsense theories because you're stuck in that moment. So that's where pay, having peers, somebody else that just, that idea of having a mate that just says, come on, you'll be all right here. This is normal. We know you can get through this. Stuff like that. Or just 
starting to be kind to yourself and go, you know what, I've had a few bad days, I've had a few bad weeks, but it doesn't mean that that's, that's where I am. Yeah. Kindness and having peers that can help you through it and just even doing it yourself, anticipating that might happen to me. What am I going to do when that happens? Are all just some simple ways of getting through it and that's where you get to the progress bit and that's where success starts to almost become default. It's, it's so weird, like, seeing it laid out like that and knowing, you know, seeing guys and, and being through it ourselves. And it is exactly, yeah, exactly like that. It's just the things you just said there. I think you probably did this as well as you were talking, especially like when you, when you were growing up and you were fed and whatnot. And like three or four things just popped into my head. <laughs> it, it, was, it was fantastic. It's like literally, literally two nights ago, I was, I was tired. And uh, I, don't, I wanted to keep myself awake. So I started eating. It wasn't great. It wasn't healthy food, by the way. It yeah, was yeah. crap food. And it just, what you said then, it just took me back to when I was little and my mum and dad were out with mum and dad's friends and it was past two o'clock or something. Yeah, and yeah. I'd, never, I'd just go straight to the buffet table to keep myself awake. Yeah, yeah. There's nowhere to go to sleep in my, in my, in my mum's friend's house. But I'd just eat. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, that, that kind of like natural psychology of just, if I'm t- my eyes start getting tired, Go and made the fridge. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So it's a pattern of behaviour. Or think about it in like there's like there's other ways about think about when you're a kid, eat everything on your plate. Yeah. Why? I'm I'm full. Eat everything on your plate. Kids in Africa are that. What the fuck's yeah. that got to do with me? We all grew up with that. But didn't we, yeah. we all get that story, don't yeah. we? When we're a kid, and then when you stop and challenge it as a grown-up, you go, "Hang on, why? If I'm full, stop." Do you know what I mean? But yeah. nobody's telling you that as a kid. How do you no. see so your plate? I often say you can see the ghost of so many people's childhoods rustling around their adult bodies. You just have to listen to them. You see yeah, so many people so that, like, true, yeah. like the example I often use is: Do you know grown-ups that have a temper tantrum when they can't get their own way? Of course we do. People that start like, but because they've learned as a kid, if I shout for long enough and long and loud enough, eventually everyone goes, "Oh, fucking, I'll give them their own way." Yeah. So when they get as a grown-up and they have the same thing. The, pa- the ghost of their childhood it's, it's is. It's just subconscious, isn't it? It doesn't even happen consciously where they think, like, I'm going to have a tantrum. Yeah, yeah, just they've just learned what's the quickest way I get my own way here. Yeah, right, I'll fucking kick off. So yeah. <laughs> you see it in terms of, there's so many things like you're saying, like when I'm tired, I eat to stop awake, which once you recognise that, that's the first step of just being self-aware to go, right, is that really the most helpful thing? And because this is an, another important thing when we talk about this kindness, get away from good or bad right or wrong there's nothing right or wrong in the world there's nothing good or bad the better question to ask is is that helpful or unhelpful to me and if the answer is it's unhelpful well do do you want to do something different yeah right but when you say it's good or bad when you fall off the wagon occasionally oh that was bad well you're not a bad person do you know what I mean so how can it's not a bad thing it's just unhelpful and that's a far kinder question to ask ourselves and literally I've had that conversation just before we came here, Brilliant. with with with, yeah. with the guys playing in in in, in my Manchester league, and he's like, ah, oh, you know, I've I've had a bad day, I've had bad food, but tomorrow I'm gonna have a good day. And I was like, it's not a switch, it's not a switch. It's yeah. not on. And, it's not on off. It doesn't work like that. It's not just you can't just switch it on and switch it off. There's no such thing as a good a good calorie or bad calorie, a good food or bad food. It all goes in the same. It all gets processed the same. You know, if you've consumed too you know, more than what you want to, reduce it throughout the week. Um, but yeah, it's just, and I, 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 
what rings with me as well, I mean, Reggie Book is, uh, will it make the boat go faster? Yeah, yeah. So this was uh, British rowing. Yeah, so, the, so this was another book I did. It was a book called The Winning Mindset. And what I did there was I went and interviewed all sort of elite sports coaches and just said, and I went and watched them. And what I was looking for was how, how do they do what they do? What, do, what are the best coaches doing? And I found there was five things. And the, so I use an acronym there called STEPS. So um, the first S is this idea of keep things that simple. Don't overcomplicate it because our brains don't do complication. So Jürgen Grobler, he was an East German um, rowing coach and in the early 1980s, he moved over to England and he took over, so he runs like, if you think of Steve Edgraves and Pinson and Cracknell and all that, he's their coach. And when he came over, he just introduced a really simple question. He said, I'm not gonna tell you what to do. He said, you're all grown ups. All I'm gonna ask you is, does that make the boat go faster? So you might say to him, going out on the piss tonight and he'd say okay right do you think that'll help the boat go faster tomorrow and you might go yeah I need a night out oh that's why she can go and do it or you might go so how many how many pints are you going to have oh six will that help the boat go faster oh probably not I could get away with having four instead do you see what I mean and so that used to be what he called the golden question so the example he uses is he used to say to Steve Redgrave you should be doing weights and Redgrave used to say, what is it if they weights? I'd have been a weightlifter, not a rower. I said, okay, fine. And he said, do you think that attitude helps the boat go faster? Yeah, I think it does. And then he got him evidence from like East German women's rowing team and said, they can lift heavier than you and they can go like faster, um, like their equivalent. And when he gave Redgrave the question, I said, do you think not doing weights is helping the boat go faster? Well, if I give it, and then he said, once he realised that actually it would, started to take weight training seriously so just having that simple question of does it help the boat go faster and I can think of how just off the top of my head does that help me get where I want to be do you know what I mean and just asking yeah. yourself that question does, right, it, does, it, serve that. does it serve what, what's your goal when you lose weight does it serve you no probably not okay well, right. what can we do to change it that's all it is you're just asking yourself and you're giving yourself choices that you're not it's not a compulsion then you might go you know what yeah, it would help me. I just need to have like a cheat day or something. Yeah. Good, you do it then. But don't beat yourself up for it. Accept that you're doing it because that helps you get where you want to do because you feel like you can relax a bit. And then, but when you start asking yourself that question, when you start giving in to that question too regularly, that's maybe where you need to think, right, how do I? I need yeah. to start making some different choices. Imagine the, imagine the switch of that. It's like, what are you doing that for? It's making the boat go faster. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. I know you're definitely going to be using that phrase in the future at some point, Robert. Yeah. Always. But they used it, so it was always the same. Of yeah. is what you're doing. Is that going to make the boat go faster? And you think about your own. Is that going to Such help you get where you want to go? Concept, isn't it? Is, is that this? Is, we need to go as fast as possible. Is that going to serve our goal? No. Well, why are you doing it? Why are you doing it then? Yeah, is a better alternative. Yeah. Yeah. And it yeah. is just breaking it down. So simple. And that I think that's, you know, that runs through through all your books, particularly the two that I've read. That it is just actually just keep things simple, like you say, um, and on a basic level. Well, I think that's I think that's a lot. I mean, well, thank you. I mean, appreciate that kind of feedback. But I think that's a life thing. Do you know what I mean? I think mm. we we can get caught up in overcomplicating life, can't we? Yeah. A lot. 
you know, like, again, using the weight loss example, that the reality is, and you, and you articulate it better, eat less and move more is the essence of how you lose weight. You know what I mean? And But we can get caught up in, well, is that carbs? Is that protein? What's the what's the um, calorie in that? Uh, the, the, and the reality is it's just be sensible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you don't need to overcomplicate it. Four words, eat less, move more. We said, we've said that quite a few times and, and we've said, you know, the process of weight loss is, is creating a calorie deficit. So that's it. <laughs> there's no there's no other way. It's just creating a calorie deficit. Do you burn more than what you consume? Yeah. Well, like that lovely example of the lad you had on last week. I, I can't remember his name. What was it? Ned. Ned. Do you know what I mean? Just reduce my calorie intake and walk. So I'm not having to run. I'm not having to do anything. Just walk from the metro yeah. to my house. So you're moving more there. So you take that. Is that helping you? Yeah, it is. Do you know what I mean? And then, and then and just it, think a little bit more about it. You, like you summed it up better than than yeah. I could have done. But he's a textbook example of yeah, it. Yeah, oh, completely, sounds. completely. And and what we what we say is, you know, the diet industry itself, and, and we're not looking to assign any blame. Obviously, everybody is personally responsible for their health, but the diet industry itself is just full of potholes of people trying to complicate that process. That's actually quite a simple process. So they're talking about carbs, eating after a certain time, keto diets. And well, I say to my missus, right, like, well, like when we moved out a few years ago and we're dealing with the solicitor and I said, sat there in this one minute, I said to my missus when he'd left, I went, I said, I don't think either of us are stupid people, not saying we're clever, but I don't think we're daft didn't understand the word he just said to me. Do you know what I mean? This solicitor. And we were talking about moving house. I've not got a clue what he's just said. And it made me think then, I thought, why do I not understand it? And there's either two things. Either I am daft, which is possible, or the reality is he doesn't want me to understand it. Because if he can keep me locked out of what he understands, I have to pay him. And he's running yeah. a business at the heart of it. He doesn't give a shit whether I move house or not, but he wants me to pay him for doing that legal thing. So... If you think about it in the diet industry, I want you failing to lose weight and coming back next year because it's a business and I'm running a business that wants you signing up and membership fees year after year yep. after year and never quite getting to your aim. Whereas what you're trying to do is say, we want people to live a healthy lifestyle and you know meet friends and, and have a sustainable way of living that isn't just about signing up in January and than flogging yeah. yourself to death. That's that's totally right. We 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 don't give and and we get feedback off players. Oh, certain players, you know, I'd like a bit more nutritional advice or a diet plan. And we're like, that's that's not what we do. We don't. We're not here to tell you what to eat. We don't know what you. We don't know whether you like carrots and we tell you to eat. You know, yeah, yeah. shed a load of carrots. That's not up for us. That's for you. But but if you want that. I'm sure you can find it. Yeah, of course you, know you can. I'm sure yeah, there's plenty of, course of course places that will give you yeah, that. You can download it off the internet in about two minutes, but that's not what, what Manly Fat's about. What Manly Fat's about is creating a community to, to, to help you lose weight, centering it around football and getting you moving a bit more uh, and getting that kind of camaraderie around sport. Yeah. I think what, yeah, I think one thing that, that Man vs Fat does above any other kind of weight loss uh, regime is I've certainly found this, and probably Stu, you found this as well, is it makes you become more self-aware about yourself because there's not much on the plate there for you. It's You've got this, you've got that, go. 
well, how do I do? What do I do? What do, how do I start? So in the WhatsApp group, you see how other people are doing, and it's like how consciously it's like right. I can identify my eating habits, so I know that I'll binge as soon as I come in from work. I want that binge. When I wake up in the morning, I like I want something to eat. But throughout the day, I'm I'm all right. I don't snack. I'm all right. But it's then that I identify that when I binge, I need to make sure that I've got something straight away when I come from work that's yep. healthy. And it and you probably found that as well with yourself yeah I think that's that's what it, for me that's what works in terms of well but that work uh, again uh, Roman I think it's a really powerful point you're making because you see this in sport you see it with kids if I if I stand next to you and shout at you you'll do it because I'm watching you but the question is what like what are you doing when I'm not there mm. do you know what I mean it's alright that you might follow the diet while somebody's telling you what to do but the reality is it's what you do when nobody's watching that's really key and that's why if you're making if you're becoming more self-aware you're having to make smarter decisions yourself that mean that when you're on your own you like you're equipped to make smart decisions you're not looking to the sidelines for a coach and this is one of the things I say to a lot of the coaches I work in you almost if you're having to it's like in football where you see these managers on the touchline barking out instructions and my question is what the fuck have you been doing during the week because if you're having to stand on that touchline and constantly keep shouting instructions, questions should be asked of why haven't you prepared them to be able to make smart decisions on their own? So what have you been doing in training? Do you know what I mean? And, and that, I think that's the same with, uh, with, with, uh, with weight loss. If you're having to stand on the side and say, eat that, don't eat that, touch that, but don't eat that, you're not actually doing much in education. You're just, you're just, you're just spoon-feeding people like, quite literally. Yeah, we, we, we definitely take the approach that you know, it's got to be led by the player. The player like, knows what he likes and what he doesn't like. He knows what's best time to eat and what's, you know, and, you know if he skips breakfast, like some people, oh, you know, I had it in a WhatsApp group a couple of weeks ago. Should I skip breakfast or shouldn't I skip breakfast? Well, are you hungry in the morning? No. So why eat? Yeah. <laughs> so listen to yeah. your own body, why eat? Like, if you want to skip breakfast, if it works, if it serves you better to skip breakfast, skip breakfast. I'm, you know, that's up to you. You but know. you're not what you call, I don't, but you don't know what their lifestyle is. Exactly. You don't know. Yeah. Have you got time for breakfast? Have you got time to sit and eat something? And yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's that there's no one size fits all. I imagine. No, no. That's the same all. in coaching as it is in weight loss. As it's the same it is with teaching kids. It's there's no one size fits all. It's about understanding the individual, and the person that knows us better than anyone else is ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was. Uh, Incredible, just want to ask you some little straight questions about yeah, what on. you do. <laughs> so, uh, from your point of view, who is the best coach of all time, any sport? I'm going I'm to give you a biased answer to this, okay. but it's, a, it, it's an honest answer as well. Um, I grew up in a boxing club because so, uh, my dad was a boxing coach. So um, he ran a club on the north side of town uh, of Manchester in Collierst. And uh, he'd set the club up long before we was born, me and my brothers and my sister. So when we grew up, he'd, he'd already had it established and he was running it. And uh, my dad was he's a fascinating character. Like he left school at 14, he was an illiterate. Uh, he never had a dad himself. He grew up in sort of Catholic post-war Manchester where that was a proper stigma of being an illegitimate child. And um, he sort of, he'd, he'd gone into boxing himself and been quite badly 
uh, abused, like not sexually, but in terms of he'd been abused in terms of people taking liberties. So they'd thrown him into fights where he was badly matched and he got himself hurt, but he had nobody there looking out for him in his corner. So that was a big driver for him that he, in his sort of mid-twenties, he wanted to go and be the sort of father figure to kids that he'd never had. So he did it for 50 odd years, uh, all the way through. So he, um, he took kids that had never laced a pair of gloves on and he, he took a lot of them through to, uh, uh, some lads to Olympic medals. He took some lads through to become uh, amateur champions. He had British champions, European Commonwealth. And then he was the first Manchester man in 60 years to train a Manchester world uh, champion. So he had a string of lads that ended up doing that. So I say he was the best coach only because I was privileged enough to get like a, a like literally a ringside seat to watch what he did. And I realised that he, 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 the, the way he did it, it was all personalised stuff, but it, like every fighter he had really mattered to him. Like he, like he used to, he advised so many lads, he'd say, uh, they'd say, oh, I want a box, and he'd say, have you got another skill you can do? Because this isn't a sport you like. You play at, you're going to get yourself badly hurt, and there's people that will happily see you hurt. And he used to say to every lad that, that, that was saying, no, I want to do it, he'd say, my intention is you finish your career with the, with your face, looking yeah. the same as when you came into it, but you make a few quid out of it as well. So he used to really put the person at the heart of it. He, you know, he always used to say, I'm not being brave on your behalf. So I remember with him, and I, and I won't tell you the details because it's not fair, but I remember he had a lad who was uh, coming towards the end, he'd been a really good world champion, and he, he, he needed the money in a fight and he was boxing a lad that he knew should have beat him. I remember talking to his dad, he said, I'll pull him out after the fourth round. We'll give him three rounds, see how he gets on. And if I feel that he's not winning the fight at that stage, he said, I'll, I'll take the rap and I'll pull him out after the fourth round, which is what he did. Yeah. Because he always used to say, I'm not being brave on your behalf. No. You don't have to take the stick. I want you to walk out of here with your health intact. So just because of the human characteristics of what he did and also because I saw the journey that he'd started from scratch I'd say my dad so he was called Brian Hughes but you know I'd, like I've been lucky enough in boxing to meet people like uh, Manny Stewart I, when I was saying about the Tommy Ernst book I, I went out and spent quite a lot of time with him uh, there was a guy called Dave Jacobs that trained Sugar Ray Leonard um, I've met quite a lot of them and they've been exceptional as much as anyone else, but yeah, I'll go for my biased answer of saying my dad. Good stuff. Besides Barcelona, which team do you think, we've kind of already come across this, which team has got the best culture? So you said uh, Dole Blacks. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting that I think, as I say, I meet a lot of clubs that pay lip service to it, that don't, that say they do it, and they either do it when they're in crisis or they, they don't properly explore it. I think Barcelona are a good one. I think they're interesting though. I think one of the things is, I think they've taken, an old saying in it, that success has got many fathers and failure is always a bastard. And I think a lot of people claim credit for what Barcelona have done. And I think they're taking their eye off the ball. So when, I think some people refer to it now as the messiocracy. Mm. It's about keeping him happy. And I think you'll see them start to fall away a bit as he gets older. 
but I also think they know how to fix it and I think they might have a bit of a dip but I think they'll come back and do something special with it I think you uh, I think what Guardiola's doing at City is establishing a really powerful culture there do you and see I, similarities in, in what he did at Barca a bit I think he's I think he's clever enough not to try and replicate it I think he's adapted it uh, I mean I'm, I'm not close enough to what they did at City so when I interviewed him and some of the people part of the agreement was it would talk about Barcelona and not City but I've been in and seen a little bit of what they've done I think Solskjaer's got the potential to do it at United as well I think he's a, I think he's he buys into this idea of culture I just hope the club that yeah. support him should do it because I think he's going to have to make some really tough calls does it help when you that. come from that uh, that culture? So, Solskjaer's example, obviously, he's come from yep. Manchester United. Does that help, or is it possible to get somebody completely who's never maybe been to that club and come in? And well, I think the two examples we spoke about there, Guardiola at City has done it, um, but equally... I think we get caught up in this cult of leadership. I think we get misled in thinking that it's it's all about Guardiola or it's all about Solskjaer. There was research done by a guy called uh, Baz van der Veel, a Dutch economist, and he looked at how much impact does a coach really have on a team's performance. And he came to the conclusion, it doesn't matter how good they are, how talented they are, how smart they are, they won't impact a team's performance by anything more than around 10%. So that goes back to that point we said at the start of our chat. It's like an ecosystem. There's no one thing. Having a good coach is just one factor, but you need lots of other factors behind it as well to make it happen. And that's where I think... So the question I often ask coaches when I work with them is, how much do you feel you're, you're, you're getting out of your 10%? Because I think that's a great question that makes them a bit humble, that it's not just all about you. But secondly, it says we can measure this 10% effectiveness. How do you think you're doing against it? Yeah, on that, how do you think? Where do you think that maybe Mourinho at, at United previously had yeah had gone wrong a little bit? I think he's, he's interesting, Mourinho. So, what I didn't explain is when we talk about culture, there's five different types of cultures uh, that traditionally form. So, to explain it very very quickly, you can have like a star culture, which is all about getting the best players and paying them the most money. You can have a bureaucratic culture which is about middle management and making sure everything adds up you can have an engineering culture which is about just prizing technical skills above anything else you have an autocratic culture which is about one powerful individual and then you can have this uh, a commitment culture is what we've been talking about effectively that's when people say good culture they mean commitment culture but you can have pockets if you look at United I think what happened was they recruited an autocrat in Mourinho, so it's all about him. Do you know what I mean? It's my way or the highway. They then applied bureaucratic principles, so they wouldn't let him sign the players he wanted because he said they were, they were too old or they weren't, the value wasn't there. But then occasionally they'd recruit superstars like Sanchez or Pogba. Yeah. So the reality is, if you watch what has happened at United, there's three different types of culture, an autocratic, a bureaucratic and a star culture. So what happens is when those three cultures come together, people spend more time fighting and politicking and trying to establish who's the most important person than they do with. Just get on with your job. Yeah. And I think the thing about 
Mourinho was. He's an autocrat, but he's always been an autocrat. So the decision to appoint an autocrat comes with the with the consequence of you've got to back him now. Yeah. And what happened was I think they backed him for the first two years and then started to lose faith with him, which is where it was suddenly went poisonous like we saw yeah. earlier this season. Yeah, it certainly did. Uh, pound for pound, who's the best boxer in the last 20 years? Best boxer? Well, we were talking about Lomachenko before, weren't we? And I think, he's, I think he's... I love watching him. I'm a big... It's a brilliant question, that. I'm, I'm a big fan of... Uh, of Mayweather. Not because I thought... That, like I thought some of his fact. I like the fact that the art of boxing is to it and not get it. You know what I mean? So although yeah. he wasn't a bit like we get seduced in the big knockout punches and things like that, but I love the craftsman. I love the ones that can just the the that jab and move that and that, that always constantly giving you angles and making you making you think and giving you nightmares. So I've I've enjoyed watching him. I think recently a lot of it's been really disappointing, the boxing. I think Lomachenko's been good. I like Linares, so their match up when them two yeah. came together earlier this year was a to me was a dream fight because they weren't two knockout punchers they were just two mm. technically supreme fighters so I go against the grain I'm not a big one for the knockout punchers I've never been seduced by that yeah. I love the, the, yeah, the craftsman yeah so I'd say Lomachenko's definitely got to be up there I think he's got the potential that he could he could define this generation but the, before him I mean put Put the person aside with Mayweather because I, I yeah, hate all that yeah, bling yeah, and yeah. all that shit about money because that pr- promotes the wrong thing. But I think when you get beyond that, you know what I mean? He was a fit bloke, he was always in training, but he was a real respect for the craft of boxing. Yeah. So I'd you could to, probably uh, have thought with a week's notice coming at any, any point. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, I mean, you did stories. I remember reading about him where there was a stories of him throwing money at nightclubs and all that uh, onto the dance floor. But then what nobody tells you is, but he ran home from the nightclub. So you've got right, his road yeah. work in and things like that. So you go, <laughs> this is a bloke that, like, you can get seduced by the bling or you can go, he's a fucking grafter. Yeah. Underneath the surface, he's working his bollocks off and he's, and he's talented enough to be constantly honing his craft. And I think, he, I think he respected boxing, but I think he came to the understanding that I've got to be vulgar to make serious money. Yeah. In it. So I don't knock him for that. But I just think the long-term damage it does to boxing. Yeah, it'd be interesting to 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 know who he really is. You know what I mean? Because is he really that guy? Because that's you you know the two stories in the one night there throwing the money on Danforth, but running home from the club. It's co- completely different polar opposites, really, aren't they? If how you perceive him to be. Yeah, and I think that's it. I think our society we get caught up in the in the bling uh, yeah. culture, but the reality is the proper boxers like. I love Haglow. We were talking about him earlier. I love him. Like to me, he was, and part of the reason I love him is because the human values of him. So he had two brothers that trained him, Goody and Pat Patronelli, in uh, Boston, in, in just outside of Boston in Broxton, and uh, they they took him in when he was a fifteen-year-old lad, and they gave him work in their construction gangs and things like that. And when he was fighting for big money in Las Vegas, he still had them with him. And he used to say, you know what, they wanted to know me when nobody would give me the time of day. Now everyone wants to give me the time of day, I want to know them. And he wouldn't have anyone carry his bags. He went, nobody wanted to carry my bags when 
I'm starting out. I don't need them carrying now. And he just kept that. You know, you're a good bloke here. You understand the value of loyalty. But equally, you've never lost sight about what you're about. You're it. You like you're a fighter. You like when I did the book on him, it was all stuff where um, he used to put himself in prison. He, what he used to describe as self-imposed prison, where he'd go to this rickety hotel on Cape Cod, and he used to say to the fellow who owned the hotel, "Take the bed out, take the television out, take the phone out. I don't want any luxuries. Just put a mattress on the floor." because I'm going to prison for eight weeks and he'd blame his opponent for being put in prison. Right, and that would be his training. Camp. So that would be, he'd get himself angry so that that would fuel him and then he used to say, now I'm a fighter, I want to train like I'm the champion. So he used to, he, so he never lost sight of, this is about hard work that's got me here and now I have the excuse not to work hard, I'm not going to get seduced by that and I think there's something really, I think, I I think Mayweather was like that, but hid it underneath the blink. I think Lomachenko, yeah. when you see about some of his training that he does, he's got a psychologist that works with him and his dad. And Daddy's boy, isn't he? Yeah, but he took out, he took, like, again, people will laugh, but when he was a Ukrainian dancer, wasn't he? So he yep. took three years out to learn the craft of being a dancer. You go, I love that, love that, because that's about movement and footwork, and you can see how the way he gives angles I think he's a genius I really do and I love the fact that he's backing himself do you know what I mean he's gone into the pros and he's just going through it he's not sort of marking time so when I found that about him because I actually because I'm a Ukrainian background I actually do Ukrainian dancing right as soon as I found that out I was like how and then I took it on the football pitch and I'd, I'd gone back dancing after losing weight I went do you know what let's go back dancing good on you so I went brilliant back, I went back dancing and within weeks I noticed a difference on the football field. I was like, I feel lighter on my toes. Yeah, just yeah, the movement it gives you. Well, you probably didn't see that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you felt it. That's yeah, the main thing, yeah. It was unreal. And I can see how the angles that he uses, Lomachenko, when he throws a punch, and he's he's, he's behind the opponent before the before his opponent even knows what's happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. <sighs> so speed well, his chest with gloves on, isn't it? Like fast. boxing his chest with gloves on yeah. when it's done well. So I love the story. My dad did a book years ago on Willie Pep, and uh, he was like, for, like former featherweight champion. And uh, I love a story about him that he won a round once and never threw a punch, but he won the round because if boxing's the art of not getting it, he went and he deliberately told his corner, right, I'm, I'm not going to throw a punch, and he made the other fella miss, but still won the round because yeah. he hadn't hit him. So he he understood the art of of what boxing was about and when you look at Lomachenko sometimes you go how the fuck's he found that but he's got angles that he's moving it that he's a, he's a so have you seen some of the training with his psychologist when he comes out of the ring and then he has him doing number puzzles and things like that no yeah have a look at some of the stuff he has him doing like mental gymnastics when he comes out of the ring because the idea is when you're exhausted I need to know how does your thinking skills bear up so they're not just training him physically and they're not just training him technically they're training him mentally to say you can still think clearly even when you're exhausted and they're testing him not many fighters are doing that and that's why I love seeing is the old package from, from a, a, a sports psychologist point of view yeah what do you think is the most mentally taxing sport they're all demanding in different ways to be honest you so I wouldn't uh, they've all got different demands so yeah. I mean there's some sports that I, d that I, d I don't know enough about, um, but they're all demanding in different ways, I'd say. They all have different challenges. So being a footballer, 
you know, the bubble that you're in there must be exhausting. You know what I mean? Constant that, like, I can imagine you're constantly being mired. That where do you get a chance to switch off? Where do you get a chance to do that? The fighting, your challenge there is that uh, you constantly, again, it's like some of the entourage issues with them. Yeah. So, like the rugby players, I, I think, like they've got ultimate respect for them that they get put on their arse in a tackle. Now, me or you, if I got hit by that, I'd run the opposite direction. They get yeah. up and run straight back into the place that's just hurt them. That is courage in its own way. So it takes so many different yeah. forms that I think... Very different from sport to sport. Yeah, so I wouldn't... But I've got respect for anyone that pursues a sport at any level. Do you know what? Like, whatever you're getting out of it, you're doing more than somebody that sat on the sideline sniping or taking the piss. Yeah, and we all <laughs> do that every now and again. <laughs> no, I know, but, I've got, but yeah. bringing it back to what to the whole uh, Man V Fat programme that you're doing, I just think anyone that's getting out there and just having a go at doing something yeah. is further ahead than the person sat on the sofa taking yeah. a piss out here for that. Yeah, and that's, it. that's what we get. We, we have a lot of guys who are really self-conscious when they come down because, you know, we have a cut-off of... Um, you have to have a BMI of 27.5 to join a league. So you can get guys who are like 28 uh, and you can get guys who are like, you know, 40-odd. Um, and they're really self-conscious when they first come down. And it does drift away the more they play. Um, but I always say to him, you know, you want to step ahead of the guy who's sat on his sofa who's, you know, not bothered about his weight or probably is bothered but not willing to do anything about it. 100% I think it takes courage to put yourself out there and admit vulnerability. Do you know what I mean? That takes there's something really quite powerful about that. Yeah. Professor Damien News, thank you very much. Oh, no. Really enjoyed it. I, I could have I sat here all night. Same <laughs> No, we need to go, don't we, Ro? That's oh, well, we listen, do. thanks for having me on. That, that was really amazing. Thank it. you very much. Uh, like I say, thanks for giving us your time. Loved it. Definitely. Thank you very much. Uh, you're on Twitter. Yeah, Liquid Thinker. Liquid Thinker, so give uh, give Professor Hughes a follow. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, MVF Pod and Man Be Fat Podcast on Facebook. Thanks for listening, guys.